Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director of Westbridge. I'm a psychiatrist and addiction specialist. Mary's caught up in a rainstorm somewhere on the East Coast um, and I was glad to to take her place because today um, in our show we have Miles Adcox. Hi, Miles. Hello, Mark. Um, Miles is the CEO and co-owner of On-Site Workshops, um, which is a leader in providing therapeutic and educational consulting services. Miles is also a partner in Peak Performance Brain Training, which sounds very interesting. I want to ask you about that later. Um, And H Financial Services. Prior to on-site, Miles ran a long-term inpatient treatment center for eating disorders and trauma and had made a shift from working in sports and oil industries um, before dis- and discovered his true passion was not in that arena, but rather leading and motivating people towards positive change. Um, so, Miles, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. Um, so, Miles, you're down in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, Tennessee area. Um, and um, tell me a little bit about what on-site is and what you've been doing. I know you've been going for about 20 years or so. Actually, 32 years. 32 um, years. Yeah, it's got a really rich history, and um, we've been in Tennessee since 1997. And okay. prior to that, uh, we were in several locations. Uh, started up in Center City and then down to Austin and made a stop at the Betty Ford Center um, out in Palm Springs and then spent quite a bit of time in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And then from there, we were bought by Sierra Tucson, which is a treatment center out in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then there was a couple that brought us to Tennessee, and we've been at our site. It's about 50 miles west of Nashville for the, for these kind of the center of the state. Um, and we've been there since uh, 97. You must be pleased because that's where you're from, right? Yeah, yeah. It ended up in, you know, it was an incredible service that I'll tell you more about on in the interview on, on what it did for me. But I, I did some of my own work there and liked it so much I stayed. And for it to be in my backyard here and get to work in it, I'm really fortunate. Yeah, you are. That's great. Um, so tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about what on-site does and what's so incredible. I mean, you had your own experience there, which was compelling enough for you to stick around. Um, what hooked you and what, what do you find um, powerful and what, what happens there? Well, it um, it was founded by uh, Sharon Weichscheider Cruz. I don't know if you know her or know of her work, but she kind of, uh, she's been around. She founded Onsite in uh, 1978. She was an expert in some of the early experiential therapy models in that movement. And uh, uh, her early pioneer work with families of alcoholics and codependency, um, and she brought kind of a dynamic approach um, to healing uh, emotional pain, and that kind of became the foundation of a whole spectrum of programs that have grown into what it is today. Um, but basically, she uh, she she mentored under Virginia Satir, who, mm-hmm. um, and through that she had her own experience and kind of paved Virginia the way. Virginia Satir, great, didn't didn't write too much, but influenced a whole generation of um, family therapists with a very, um, I don't know that I know enough to be able to say, but I understand that she is an amazingly powerful, compelling, rich, experiential therapist. Um, 
um, who could create wonderful moments in the room. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, ta- you're talking about uh, Virginia or Sharon? Yeah, Virginia Satia. Right, yeah. And, and, and I would say both for both. Uh, Sharon was, was that way too. She did write a lot, wrote a lot of books. Um, but she, uh, basically, she had come from uh, a system, an alcoholic system herself, and at that time period, when it came for looking for help for the remaining members of the system, of any dysfunctional system for that matter, there wasn't a lot of resources. So she went door to door to try to get a better understanding of alcoholism, and her, her father was an alcoholic and actually hung himself, and so he committed suicide, and she had a lot of pain, and the system was really struggling, so she went door to door trying to find a place to get treatment for the painful, uh, for the emotional pain um, from an alcoholic system. And basically, there were all men's treatment centers at that time. This was well before she started on-site. And uh, she finally, um, through going uh, across-country, finally found a place that would take her in, and it was an all-men's treatment center for alcoholism. So she spent 30 days as a female non-alcoholic in a men's treatment center. And she got a really good understanding of the disease and what it is. And, um, but out of that, uh, she moved on um, and realized that there weren't a lot of resources for other people struggling within the system. And then also, once people got into recovery and it came time, once they get past the stability and, and get some sobriety and it came time to look at relationships and intimacy and a lot of the core issue stuff, uh, family of origin, a lot of trauma, when it came time to look at those things, the core issue things, there weren't a lot of places or resources to go and do that. So she kind of created this out of that. Which yeah, that's, us- that's a really good point. So there's a ton of treatment um, available for, well, there's, there's detoxes, um, which have very poor outcomes. Um, they have um, the, the 28-day model, um, which sort of faded a bit from favor, um, um, fell a bit out of favor, um, partly because of reimbursement issues. But, you know, there's so much um, early withdrawal and protracted withdrawal issues, early abstinence issues. Um, but later on, there was very, very few resources for this sort of, for the kind of issues that really bring people um, to their addictions, as well as dealing how to deal with the rubble that years of addictions have brought, right? Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree. And she she paved a way to, you know, leading us all the way up to today, we still do that. And basically we offer, we've got a campus about 50 miles west of Nashville, and we've got mm-hmm. about, we can have a house about 40 people at one time. It's a beautiful um beautiful piece of property with an old mansion from 1868 that's been restored and we've got some nice cabins very comfortable accommodations but people will come to us from all over the country from from local and all over the country to do um, either individual work we work with couples families and we actually do some work with business as well to support positive change through an experiential intensive model anywhere from a four and a half day to a seven and a half day experience and we're running those about you know 42 weeks out of the year months out of the year. So, so um, can you explain a little bit more about um, the role of the family and how you engage families within um, the treatment at that stage? Tell me a little bit about what Sharon and uh, thought about and how that work has continued. Sure. Sharon... Um and what we still today, I still think there's a big gap in engaging the family in long-term treatment. And basically, it's 
we're not the first people to talk about systemic treatment or treating the entire system uh, in terms for better outcomes, uh, but we are uh, one of the one of the few resources that stand alone that offers that kind of treatment for other members of the family to come work on whatever it is that they're struggling on because what we know there's plenty of research to support uh, that it's a system it's a systems disease and that you basically have got an identified patient but you've got uh, everybody in the system has their own struggles and has have all dealt with um, either the impact that the disease has caused or they had some of the same experiences and same traumatic events but people uh, would say Look, you know, it's about treating the person. Just have the person treat, treated. They've got to stop using drugs, um, and then the mom and dad will be fine, or the sibling, the, the spouse will, um, um, the problems in the relationship will um, fade away. Um, right. But that's not, you're saying that's not really an accurate um, I, 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 I don't believe it's accurate for all the people all the time. I do think there are systems that get healthy and better um, once somebody's been treated. But I'll say for most of the people, this is my experience, and there's some research that supports this as well, for most of the people, going back into an untreated system, it makes it hard for them to maintain long-term recovery. Can you give without... a couple of examples about what behaviors or patterns tend to um, linger and cause difficulties and increase relapse rates? Well, the one that, that we talk about most, and it's kind of a word that, uh, or a term that has been um, a little controversial, and it's, it's sometimes the meaning of it gets um, defined differently depending on who you're talking to, but that's codependency. That's one of the, primarily dri- the primary drivers of the pathology behind what other family members might be doing, and that might translate to enabling um, a person, propping a person up in an addictive system to keep that system sick, or a whole number of other emotional traumatic experiences. A lot of addiction comes out of years of emotional suppression, and one person picks addiction as a medicator, but the other folks might pick another medicator. Um, and codependency is usually a pretty common thing, pretty common theme in an addictive system. And as I said, that can be defined a number of dif- different ways. But basically, it's a set, you know, a set of maladaptive, uh, compulsive behaviors that are learned by family members to survive in an emotional, emotionally painful, um, you know, and stressful environment. So an example would be um, if if there's um, a great deal of distress. People can't constantly engage and struggle and fight and don't necessarily have the, the tools to, to know how to make a um, positive um, intervention with someone in a caring fashion and may either, either withdraw, turn a blind eye, or, um, as you said, enable, um, and um, or because of their own guilt, possibly from patterns in their own lives. Um, end up supporting inadvertently the ongoing drug or alcohol use um, because of guilt and feelings of inadequacy themselves. Yeah, sure, and the you know a good uh, an example or maybe a metaphor would be let's say there's been a, a car accident, which often you know addiction. Let's say there's been a car accident and every member uh, that was in the vehicle has been injured. Um, 
yet when the ambulance rushes up onto the scene, um, there's usually one person that's been injured the most, and that's the person that might be bleeding the most or might have the most injuries, physical injuries from the accident. So basically they'll put, take that person, put them in an ambulance, and rush them off to the hospital. Yeah. And the rest of the members of the system have been hurt by this accident as well. And so when we get to the hospital, um, you've got the person that's the identified patient or the person that's been hurt the worst in the accident that's laying on the operating table. And you've got the professionals that are in there, the doctors or the surgeons that are in there doing the work. And then if you go up to um, uh, the, the area where you would observe, uh, you've basically got the other family members that are observing this happening. And every now and then, uh, one of those family members who might have the same pathology as the addiction that just comes out in codependent behaviors will run down, knock on the surgery room door, tap on the surgeon's shoulder and ask him, say, you know, can I borrow that scalpel for a minute because I know how to treat this a little better than you do. And that's been a real common thing. It's a distractor from treatment teams because of the families. And basically what we do at Onsite and what treating uh, the pathology behind trauma and codependency is saying, let us do what we do with the addiction or the, the identified patient or the person that's been hurt the most because we are experts in doing that. And there's a room down the hall or, or out of this building that will take you to do your own work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we'll come back after a short break and hear a, little, uh, a lot more about what you do, codependency, engaging the family in treatment and on-site courses. Talk to you soon. Okay, you got it. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family sense of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for the right turn with J.J. O'Malley. It's an insider's look at America's fastest-growing motorsport series, the Grand Am Rolex Sports Car Series, presented by Crown Royal Cask Number 16. You'll hear about what happened last weekend and get a preview of what's coming up next. From the Rolex 24 at Daytona through Watkins Glen International, Mid-Ohio, Laguna Seca, right up to the championship at Homestead Miami Speedway. The Right Turn with J.J. O'Malley, broadcast live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So this is Mark. To get another jingle in there so it doesn't say welcome back to Mary. Um, Mark, I'm the uh, medical director at Westbridge. We've got um, Miles Adcox here. Um, so, Miles, we, before the break, we are talking about um, codependency, and I think it's a, a, a big shift, an ongoing shift. Family therapy has been around for ever, decades, um, but still, it's such a marginalized aspect of recovery um, and treatment. Most programs have um, maybe a family weekend here and there, um, but you know Westbridge has family work interwoven through every stage of recovery, and uh, from before we meet the, the potential participants, we consider the family an active part of the um, recovery process, an essential part of the recovery process, because the data is so strong. But um, how do you how do you manage uh, on site um, this difficulty with um, convincing the identified patient that the family needs to come in, um, and how do you engage the family, convince the family members that they've actually got some work to look at themselves, and it's not just all about the um, the person who they you know about the husband who's been drinking or the wife who's been um, you know. Um, using drugs, how do, you, how do you convince other family members and, that they need to get involved in treatment and start looking at themselves? Well, it's, it's not easy, but it's extremely important. And I'll, just to echo what you said, I, I, um, there are some programs out there uh, like Westbridge that make a, uh, an intentional effort to integrate the family piece in in a strong way. And I, it's so important. I've got to think it supports better out, long-term outcomes. Oh, the data is profound on outcome. I mean, it, certainly, if you look, our specialty is around co-occurring disorders, so major mental illness and and addictions. And if you look at the factors involved in um, relapse rates, you know, medication is very high with that population with psychotic disorders and bipolar disorder. But very close, or you know, in some studies higher, is family involvement. And as you said, people go back to the family, and if there's the same kind of interactions, tensions, and shame and encouragement and um, people relapse. Um, it's kind of like, is inevitable, know, and, right? Yeah, well, yeah, an extreme example of that would be, you know, it's pulling a, a leper out of the colony and uh, cleaning them up and then sending them back to the colony and saying good luck. Right, exactly. And that's unfortunately the way a lot of very good programs um, do it because they focus on a short-term care model and um, don't really... Yeah. Well, and I, I get that. I mean, I understand that ch- it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. It's industry-wide, um, even the ones that do more family treatment than others, because coming from running an inpatient uh, model, it is challenging to, uh, you know, you have your resources, and basically, basically you, you try to decide where, where and how best to use them. And you've got the person in front of you that you've got the ability to treat, and you can somewhat manage uh, their process and the and, and control how you go about doing that while they're with you. And 
to apply those re- as much resources as you can to doing what you do for the people that do it, it's hard to carve out the resources or find that that's as important uh, to treating this family who's kind of this unknown thing that's out here that most people talk to at the beginning and the end of treatment mm-hmm. or maybe do a three-day to a five-day workshop in between. Exactly. And, I, and I think they're good. I think the workshops are good, and I, and I agree with you that this is something that's been going on for a long time, and uh, we're not the first people to wave the flag advocating for stronger family contri- uh, family treatment or more integrative um, but for some reason, there's a gap. There's been a gap from when it was really popular uh, back when the ACOA movement and codependency movement, some of that stuff was really popular. And then back in the 80s and early 90s, and those conferences were full, to, we kind of slipped, I felt like, a little you know, backwards mm-hmm. for almost a decade um, in neglected family treatment. There's some good family programs, but we've neglect, uh, neglected looking at them as a whole and trying to do any outcome studies on the family. Um, and I, it feels like now there's some more movement around it. And this is just one aspect of what I do at OnSite. We work with a whole array of things. It just happens to be something I'm passionate about because, after, you know, in being in an inpatient setting, I watched it over and over again. There's some major relapse factors, and that's always one of them yeah. is going back into that. So what do you do, what do, you do with um, families that engage them, and what kind of tools do you use? in your work with families that you find um, particularly useful? Well, what we usually see with families or members of a system um, is that there's always the pathology similar. So it's not always family. It might be um, close partners or um, um, other close support networks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's basically, you know, all pathological behaviors are, I feel like, trauma-related in some way. And trauma, you know, occurring when human needs aren't are not met on a relatively consistent basis, including the need to process trauma, uh, producing moments or experiences, which is um, a lot of times when you grow up in a system like that, there's usually there's typically um, a lot of, as I said, emotional trauma, and sometimes more uh, obvious and evident, which is physical or sexual abuse, but a lot of times emotional trauma at the very least. And, uh, and trauma is trauma. And I feel like it, usually every member of the family has, has the pathology that supports trauma. And trauma is a, is an interesting, um, it's, it's a challenging thing to bite off in the amount of time that we have to treat the families. Usually you don't, you, it's hard to keep them engaged in a long period of time. And that's why we've adapted over time and used an experiential model, um, which, I feel like it, uh, for a number of reasons, it, I think there's a lot of useful models. And why do we use experiential? Well, it's, for one, it's it's an accelerated, it's a way we, we can show people what they, they tell us. Um, and it, it, it does something in the brain. And I know you guys are pretty familiar with uh, where trauma sits in the brain and, and looking at, you can, we've learned a lot in brain science and trauma. And to have some type of release for those for those neural nets that form around a traumatic experience. I've seen that advanced faster through using experiential therapy versus education alone because it engages just if you've got somebody for six and a half days to engage them into their process by showing them showing them what they're telling us and doing some role play and doing some psychodrama, doing some experiential. It intends to move and accelerate that process along at a quicker pace and. And hook them into a longer term process versus we don't, you know, we're, 
what's the likelihood of getting a family for 30 to 90 days? It's just it's not going to happen in most no. cases. Ideally, it'd be great to treat a whole system that long, um, but that's not I realistic. Palo Alto days back in the 50s, they probably did that, but not these days. Yeah. So the question, the ongoing question is, what can we do with, if you get access to a family or to members of the family, what are we able to do in the short amount of time that we have? Um, and we use a variety of, of techniques, but basically we, at its foundation, I'm not familiar with, with psychodrama, but uh, it's a pretty, I mean, it's an old, Jacob Moreno founded it, and uh, it's basically uh, getting people up, moving them around, role-playing, but and then experiential came along, and it took what psychodrama, which is its kind of its foundation, and it brought in some different components, which Virginia Satir, she would freeze a sculpt and show a family sculpt uh, versus continuing to move along with the protagonist's work and bring in props and it was a whole educational piece but i don't i the good news is is i uh i get to work with and represent the experts behind that because we contract with clinicians from all over the country that come in and facilitate that and i represent their work but i don't i don't claim to be the expert because i don't do their work um mm-hmm. so to have have one of my clinicians tell you exactly what happens and how we integrate the experiential work I know it in theory, and I've also participated and watched it, and that was part of, part of, for me, that was the way my brain picked up on something very fast, and it connected my, my head to my heart in a much faster way. I dropped down in my body, it grounded me, and I got involved and engaged in, in a process um, that I'd been looking for for years. Yeah, I think, yeah, so I think that's right. Learning takes a place a lot longer if there's an emotional experience when you're going through it, and... Um, it's much easier to learn something in the process of doing it, even if it's in a role play, um, than being told and then told to integrate it when the time comes. Um, You can have quite a transformative experience, which sets the groundwork for further work, which you have to do when you get home, I suppose. Um, But there's your reference point. You can always say, I knew what that felt like, and I know that it can be effective, and now we just have to build on it ourselves. Well, yeah, you, you use more of the senses. I mean, it's a highly efficient method to, to help the, the, the brain see or heal itself. And one of the major reasons that I've seen that people don't change, well, if you looked at the stages of change, but one of the major reasons people don't change is that it's not their idea. Um, and so a big part of experiential therapy is getting walking with um, uh, walking with someone so that it becomes their idea. And showing it's showing them in a way uh, that change takes on a different level, mm-hmm. and, and you know there's also research to support that. Uh, whereas there are some confrontational models in working with identified patients or addiction clients that have proven at some level to have some impact or to be effective, especially in the intervention phase. However, when you're working with the pathology behind you know, trauma codependency. Uh, in the family members, what we've seen is that uh, pushing or pulling them towards a direction doesn't seem to take as, as quickly as walking with them or meeting them where they are because usually there's so much shame wrapped up in it. So, yeah, I mean, you, you talked about trauma earlier, and as you're talking about trauma, you were generalizing it, so you weren't necessarily talking about um, profound physical or sexual abuse. But you would, I think 
talking more broadly about the experience of shame and humiliation um, that people can experience in their family of origin and how that can make it difficult for them to be assertive um, and and supportive um, in their later relationships. Is that is that right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I would with you know trauma can be defined. It's another one that can be defined a lot of different ways. But anything yeah. other than nurturing. Um, would be one and a lot of lot of unless you I would say unless you well there are no perfect systems but most everybody at some level has experienced some type of traumatic event either uh, witnessed uh, something or there comes our music so we'll hold that for the next segment maybe well I'm I'm the host so I get to know there's a few seconds but I think what you're saying is that um, you know that experience of um, in when you have a deficit of adequate nurturing can really bring you a sense of shame and humiliation makes it very difficult to be um, supportive when you're experiencing a challenge later on in life um, and have to be securely attached to your partner to be to be supportive there you uh, go so let's come after the, come back after a short break okay You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. At last, a radio program dedicated to helping women look fabulous and feel fabulous naturally. You'll pick up tips on natural detox, learn about the benefits of whole foods, practice stress and relaxation techniques, and learn more about health, relationships, remedies, and self-motivation. Tune in to Feel and Look Fabulous with Arena. Broadcast live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We promise you, it's women's time well spent. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hey, welcome back to One Hour Time. This is Mark Green standing in for Mary um, with Miles with Adcock, um, Adcock sorry, um, from on-site workshops. Um, Miles, we've been talking mainly about family, and we like talking about families and their role in um, codependency because, um, and, and treatment because we know how incredibly important it is. And, that, and I think... I mean, personally, I feel proud of the work that Westbridge does. I think you feel the same. You know, we, it marks us out a bit from um, from other programs and uh, feels like a very strong aspect of what we do. But you do um, a lot of other things and therapeutic workshops um, with this experiential um, focus. Um, but is the, are, are, all, are all of the workshops geared towards um, people with addictions, or are you trying to get at uh, a, who comes to your programs? <laughs> there you go. It's um, it's a pretty diverse group that that end up participating in our programs or workshops, and it, uh, it part of it is what I, we talked about. And you're right; we could spend all day talking about uh, a better way to integrate families into treatment. But off of that box for a minute, um, there. They're a great fit for a number of different a number of different uh, folks, and we have a lot of people. We work with a lot of alumni programs of inpatient treatment centers because we do a lot of stage two recovery work. Meaning, our one of our core programs. Uh, we it used to be called. Uh, we used to use the word codependency a lot more, and now it's more commonly uh, described as living centered. Um, and it's a six and a half day, you know, experiential intensive, and it hits relationships and intimacy and family of origin and uh, you know trauma, um, several different stage two uh, recovery components. So these are for people that have began the recovery journey and are two years in, all the way up to fifteen or twenty years in, and uh, suddenly they hit some, you know hit something a block and. And need to come do some of their own work. And Sharon was a big advocate uh, back when she started, and we still are today, of uh, people in our field uh, doing their own work. And we usually have one to five um, professionals in our field in every program that we do, especially the, the Living Center program, the one we do once a month, where people in our profession are dealing with, uh, you know, it's a pretty stressful profession to be in, and there's a high rate of burnout. And uh, often people come and take that hat off for a few days and do some of their own work. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I would say it's for professionals, it's for people that are in recovery, um, either short or long term, to do some of their, their own work. Um, it's for family members of people that are in recovery. And then it's for everyday uh, professionals that don't even have a therapeutic foundation. I've got, there's some attorney's assistance programs and other groups that will refer us a client that's going through a divorce um, or going through other some other major life event that's causing a lot of stress, and and they haven't picked up a a primary medicator, um, a substance, um, but yet they've got tremendous stress and and their wheels are falling off in other areas. And a number of folks will come through private practices or life coaches, um, 
And these these clients typically will be in a practice, and the easiest way to say it is, is there a client in your practice you've been seeing for a while that's stuck anywhere in their process? And most most therapists will say yes. They've got somebody that fits that, prof- that fits that profile. That client that's stuck in their process would come to us, do an intensive, and we would do some intensive work with them, and then get them back into the practice. And then liaise with their therapist and say, look, this is what we've found um, together, um, and this might be a track that you can proceed with. Yeah, and the idea is is that we would resolve um, in an intensive way resolve some of the trauma so that some of the things that they're getting in uh, their outpatient therapy is going to stick. It's kind of like a tilted table until you, you know, until you, for a lot of people, until they do some of this work, whether it be experiential or another model, there's other models I think that work well in treating trauma, EMDR and, and brain spotting and some other, and I can tell you about the other one too that we're involved in. But experiential is just another way to resolve some of that trauma. And what happens is when you begin to resolve some of that trauma, your table begins to level. And until it doesn't, you can you can continue to get information and it's like a tilted table. You keep putting things on there and some stick and some don't, but ultimately they all slide off um, until you level the, ta- level the playing field by doing some pretty, you know, some deeper work. Um, it it sounds like a very powerful experience, six and a half days of um, experiential um, immersion in this kind of uh, trauma-focused work. Um, it must be very draining for the therapists involved too. It is, and that's why that's one, we got a unique way that we staff uh, our programs. And there were two reasons why they did this in the beginning and why we really support it and continue doing it today. It's challenging logistically because we've got 65 therapists from all over the country that we contract with, and they basically come out of practice, you know, their own private practice, or you know, they might be have moved on and, and are just writing. Typically, people that have a lot of experience, they're all master's level. They've been they've been trained in our model. They've done their own work there. That's one of the requirements. And they, we fly them in to facilitate workshops. Some people will do one a month. Some people do two a year. Um, and the reason we did that was for two reasons. One, I feel like this is a uh, – it, it requires um, – I mean, I, I feel like the folks that facilitate this work for us are, are artists in their own way, and it requires a high skill level. Uh, because what you don't want to do and what happened a lot early on when a lot of people started doing psychodrama and experiential was – um, there was too much of an agenda, and basically it was how big can the work be in order for us to accomplish something. And a lot of times they regrooved or re-traumatized people. So we're very careful that the people that facilitate this work are at the top of their game. And basically they're people that you couldn't hire in an agency. You know, they, they do too well in their practice to come to work uh, full-time in an agency, but you can actually contract with them, and they love coming back and doing it. That was one. And the second and probably the biggest one is because you're right, it is draining on the staff. And to do that week in, week out would quickly burn people out. So we want to practice what we preach and, and bring them in, let them do the workshop and go back to their, their yeah. other job. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. The uh, psychodrama and um, particularly psychodrama, I think, for, for trauma, uh, early trauma, um, fell into some disrepute a few decades ago because um, the methods got... Um, were experienced as re-traumatizing, and um, and so it's interesting to hear that um, Sharon, I suppose, has really kept that um, flame going, and that it's really 
um, done a lot more respectfully and carefully now. Um, it's 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 uh, it's sacred work. I mean, it really is, and you you have to you have to take it really serious and be really responsible when you do it. And you, as much, and that's we staff three times a day when we're there. I mean, so people see us because people come to us for a number of different reasons. Often they see us as casual as just a, a seminar or a workshop. Some people will come to us just to do personal growth type work. But there's a pretty sophisticated clinical approach behind it um, that we have a high level of quality control. And one thing that we absolutely won't do when people arrive is we're not going to add shame to anybody's story. Um, we're, uh, there's got to be a tremendous amount of safety when you're doing this. So we put uh, a, a real uh, uh, firm and a container around it and give them a lot of unconditional support acceptance and love and that's the only way to get somebody through that piece it's it's powerful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um on your website you have um uh equine therapy and um i know that's become quite a um prevalent model in different places but especially tennessee right you're big into your horses in tennessee <laughs> yeah. um but um can you give me a few words on um, why this has become so? Is it just a fashion, or is there something really powerful um, that occurs here? It is powerful, and this is something we picked up and started doing when uh, they were at Sierra Tucson. But I had some experience in the other facility that I ran for a while. We did a lot of, we integrated a lot of equine work into a long-term treatment model, and. Equine work is another form of experiential work that really gets people out of their in their body. Um, whereas uh, horses serve as a, uh, an, an amazing mirror uh, for people, and there's I've seen some work happen in and around horses and at the barn that you could uh, you couldn't dream of of happening inside a traditional therapy room. And there's a there's a heightened sense of awareness uh, in a in a horse being. Um, a prey, you know, a prey animal. They've got a uh, the ability to sense things at a much higher level than a human can. So a good a good uh, uh, intuitive equine facilitator or equine therapist, which are some great as you said, has gotten really popular later in over the last ten years, um, can pick up things about body language, the what the horse is telling them how the person's relating to it and it can be an incredible metaphor for a number of things how you are with the horse could tell you a lot about how you are with yourself and how you are with people and where your relationships are struggling or where they might be growing and for some people it um well for me for one uh, that was that was one of the areas where it happened to me when I was on my path I really it was a big thoroughbred out in Tucson Arizona where I did did my work some of my work and and I grew up with horses. I'm a Tennessee guy, so it's, you know, a lot of people, um, in Tennessee, you're right. A lot, not everybody in Tennessee knows horses, but we are, uh, there are a lot of horses in, the, in Tennessee and Kentucky. And, and I grew up with horses and thought I knew everything there was to know about them. And I was in an area of my life where I was stuck, um, and was struggling. And when, and I could talk my way through, um, traditional therapy in a, in a, in a room and I could really never get below my head. But when I got out there, with this, um, you know, 1,300-pound animal and was asked to do something for me, which was very simple, lead this horse from one end to the, of the barn back. 
um, I didn't even blink. I thought, this is no problem. I've done this a lot, and I had problems with it. And what I learned was is that as I was walking, all my focus was on this horse, how he was going to do this, how I was going to do it, what the people watching thought of us going down through here, and was it going to look perfect. And uh, that was a great metaphor and mirror that got pointed out to me because truth was, is if I'm walking this horse, and it's a simple task to lead a horse, but if I'm looking at him the whole time and I've got him on a lead, then neither of us are looking where we're going. Um, and that's real common in relationships is folk, all the focus on the partner and nobody watching you know, your own side of the road. Mm-hmm. But that's just one example. There's been a tremendous amount of powerful metaphors that come out of um, equine work. And a lot of resistance, na- natural resistance goes down in a hurry um, uh, or it heightens it. Uh, in the presence of course. That's very interesting. I mean, I think that's right. You can um the traditional talk therapies um are um great for some people but very difficult for probably more. Um and um it's very hard for people with um activity um early in their recovery or um with various major mental illnesses to engage in um, talk therapies in a way which they can really link to their emotions and um, it sounds like equine therapy um, and other experiential therapies kind of sidesteps that need for control and processing um, and enables you to just do something which your facilitator can then weave back into the therapy, huh? Yeah, it's a powerful piece. All right, let's come back for our last segment after a short break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
The World Health Organization estimates that 50 to 80 million people worldwide are facing infertility today. For most of them, this news is devastating. It's time for Gifted Journeys. This innovative program hosted by Wendy Wilson, president of a highly successful California-based egg donation agency, will take you beyond the traditional family and introduce you to alternatives such as IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, and adoption. You'll hear from experts and those who have walked the path. Tune in to Gifted Journeys, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So hi, it's Mark Green. I'm with Miles Adcox. Uh, Miles is the CEO um, of um, CEO and um, and um, therapist too. Or you do much no, therapy I, there too? I don't. I do some some educational stuff, but I'm I'm run the administrative side of it. But we're so small, okay. you're kind of involved in all areas. But I don't facilitate any do any clinical work. I've on-site workshops, and actually your website's onsiteworkshops.com. Um, so before the break, Miles, we were talking about um, equine therapy. You, you gave a nice picture, I liked it, um, of a process that occurred. You, you were saying that you and the horse might be looking at each other so intently and not really one looking where you're going makes the process of moving forward pretty tricky. And so most many couples do that. Many people in relationships do that. So head up and about that and you have a program on your website um, called Healing Money and I wondered about that because people in recovery um, are often in terrible financial trouble they've often used um, money to support various addictions or just behave very impulsively um, or just um, neglected financial well-being um, while their minds were occupied by other aspects of their addictions or or whatever it might be. So um I I was wondering could you tell us a little bit a little bit about that healing money program whether it's and how it relates to this experiential um focus that you've been describing. Sure and it's 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 similar to for instance the equine piece which you referred and part of part of that, just to just to close that piece up, was what happened when I focused the whole time is that I had a tough time getting down there and back. And then when, with the simple instruction of watch and look where you're going, um, then it went perfectly the second time, and I got great feedback, and it all felt good. And one of the reasons it's I feel like is that's one of the harder things to do, regardless if you're what relationship you're in, whether it's um, you know, a partner or a family or a colleague, it's much easier to look outside of you to what might be happening and be a problematic within the relationship versus looking inside you. And that's kind of the the focus of what we do, and I think it's why it's so important and why it seems to be a fit for such a diverse audience. It's 
um, what's what's the healthiest and and one of the fastest and one of the safest ways to look inside you and get to know who you are as a person so that you can better relate to yourself and the people outside of you and kind of go back into your communities in a way to to make yourself and your communities a better place. That's what the process is all about. Now the money program is is interesting. The the previous owner. Um, Dr. Ted Quantz and, and his wife Margie. Ted's a psychologist, and he still consults uh, with us and still runs these money programs that we have. And he's got several books out around the psychology of money. And this this is one of the only places that you can kind of go impatient and do any specific work about money problems or money disorders, um, which could be uh, more specifically designed as hoarding or or uh, um, overspending or under underspending there's a number of different things that people can do with money and what we know about money is when people do get in uh, problematic uh, relationships with money then that's usually tied back again to the pathology it's tied back to some type of traumatic event and there are some good educational pieces out there about money like Dave Ramsey and and a lot of the uh, uh, I forget the other lady's name that's on Oprah all the time that's become really popular. They're really good, um, and what they tell you is they tell you not to go into debt and not to spend uh, things on your credit card that you can't that you can't afford. Don't have credit cards. Cut up credit cards, and they give you great information. And what we know is that there's part of the people can take that information and apply it. People that haven't done the trauma work, many times you can tell them over and over again, and until they do the trauma work around whatever experience they had about money, then they're not going to go anywhere. The information is just going to slide off, as I said with the table earlier. It's interesting because money, there was a there was a some uh, a survey done. This was even before uh, 08 when the economy crashed. Of the number one, 70 percent it was the number one stressor for 70 percent of Americans. And I could certainly illegal. believe it. And for couples, the, the tension in couples is enormous around money. And it's the least talked about thing in therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. It's one of those things that uh, it's kind of like uh, doc, medical general practice doctors don't get a lot of education on addiction, depending on what school they went to, versus sure thera- therapists don't get a lot of education on money or money disorders because it's kind of a new thing. Um, but we it's kind of another door to come through. Um, you kind of come through the door of, of money or you come through the door of, of sex uh, or you come through the door uh, regardless of, of relationships or codependency. And ultimately it ties back to the, this pathology that's underneath it. And that's what we kind of look at. We, get, we, we allow people to undo some of those things that may be problematic and, and hopefully resolve some of the trauma that uh, some of the emotional trauma that might be holding them back and translate into money issues and a whole lot of other issues well i i think if that goes well then uh, your um then your program probably pays for itself pretty quickly because people can get in terrible financial straits um and a little bit of foresight and collaboration between between members of a family system can make a huge difference in their long-term well-being um, as well as some experiencing some success um, in their lives around that. Um, so, you know, it's your, um, you said off air that a great thing about your program is that anybody seems to benefit from it. They don't have to be 
deep into their addiction or are struggling with anything. So, um, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible ancillary service for the treatment industry, no doubt, for recovering people and their families, but it's also everyday people that are looking for healthier lives and uh, a, a better approach to living and some freedom from emotional stress and strain. It's a, it's a great fit for that. And probably it's a good... Someone once said to me, strike while the iron's cold. Don't wait for a crisis. Get yourself into some, um, make some changes while things are going well. And it sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Um, I'd love to come down to Tennessee and have a transformative experience sometime myself. <laughs> well, we've got That's a spot great. for you if you ever want to come down. Well, thanks for being a guest. And um, if people want to reach you, they can reach you through on-site yeah um, and one thing about that website it's spelled o-n-s-i-t-e workshops.com you can find me find me there and emails on there and happy to talk to you if you think we might be a fit for somewhere happy to talk to you and i appreciate what you guys do with this radio program and with uh, westbridge that's an incredible program and it's a great service you're offering by getting this information out there i'm glad we could participate in it thanks so much take care all right Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.